Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to Evil Pudding, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Courtney. And I'm Patrick. And welcome back. Howdy. <laughs> we're recording in the morning, and we Super usually weird. record in the afternoon, so we're still kind of trying to wake up. Super but <laughs> we usually record at like 7 or 8 o'clock at night. Yeah, yeah. The, but The dang kids had all places to go every dang night this week. We couldn't do it. Oh my gosh, it's so true. It's been a busy week. But um, welcome to, we got some new listeners, so welcome to all of you guys. And um, the sticker giveaway went well. We will work on getting a store at some point. We need more stickers. We need more stickers. We're going to put in an order for more. And um, I'm excited about future merch, definitely. Things to come, we got to work on it still, so we'll see what happens. Yep, and we will keep you updated. And... I'm trying to think, is there any more news? No. There's not. There's just not. There's just not. (laughs) Busy but quietly. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm excited about today's story. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. That's never good. So. Never good. You know, on this podcast, we've covered tons of serial killers. We have? Yes. Okay. And we like learning what makes them tick. I think that's. Just kind of our thing, right? It is. We want to know what makes these weirdos, sickos tick. However, have you noticed by any chance that there are very few serial killers, like people classified as serial killers who are not driven by sex and like hedonistic lust to some degree? We've covered a couple. There's very few. I mean, yeah, there's definitely a very It's hard to find. Today... I'm going to introduce you to a man who is classified as a serial killer who is not driven by sex, but rather he's driven by greed. Okay. Yeah. So we're going to see just how far someone will go to fulfill one's own desire for wealth, power, and control. It is all about control with serial killers, I think. Definitely. So today we're going to go across the pond to the UK. To meet a man named jo- uh, John George Haig, or sorry, Hay. Hey. Hey. But it's spelled H A I G H, so it makes me want to say Haig, but it's Hay. Okay, whatever. <laughs> so, John George Hay. He's known to many as the acid bath killer. Oh, he's going to be fun. Yeah. So this Sounds like a lovely human being. <laughs> this may get a little gory, guys, but I'll do my best to warn you before we get to the nasty parts so that you can put your snack down when things start to get kind of putrid, and they will. Just warning you. So I was just going to go ahead and say, say it now because it's every episode. They get ridiculous. This whole thing is that there, there's just little parts that are putrid, so don't worry. Putrid. Okay, putrid. It's a new word for us here. Yeah. I use it quite often, actually. <laughs> Just not in the podcast. Not in the podcast, yeah. So put on your gas. usually referring to one of the kids' rooms. (laughs) It smells putrid in here. (laughs) So put on your gas masks and rubber aprons, and let's dive into this twisted tale of a charming, ruthless con man and his desire to get rich at the deadly expense of others. All right. Oof. So what do we always do? We like to go back into the early life of these Awful people. What makes these fuckers monsters? Yeah, see if we see any early red flags. So John George Hay was born on July 24th, 1909, to John Robert and Emily Hay in Stamford, England. 
So this is an older case. Most of ours are, actually. Yeah, it's worked out that way, hasn't it? Yeah. From what we know of John's parents, they weren't bad people, per se. Like, they weren't beating him or abusing him or anything crazy. However, they were very religious. Like, they were extremists. I would I would classify them as extremists. They belonged to a religious group called the Plymouth Brethren. Oh, God. Yeah. Also, sometimes... It just uh, screams like <laughs> cultish. Sometimes the Plymouth Brethren were referred to by the people around them as, quote, the peculiar people. So maybe they've changed today because there's still churches that exist that are Plymouth Brethren, and maybe they're different now. But back then, in the earlier times, I think they were rather extreme. So basically, according to Wikipedia, the Plymouth Brethren are what's called a low church or a nonconformist Christian movement. What this meant, at least just to the Hay family, was that the Bible was to be the only form of literature consumed for entertainment by their son, by them and their son, John George, altogether. So if you're bored, read your Bible. That just sounds fun. super fun. You want to go outside and play with your friends? Read your Bible. <laughs> no. Read Revelation. It's better for you. <laughs> okay. So John Sr. was very eccentric and took his faith very seriously. He forbade John, his son, from playing sports or playing with friends. He even went as far as to construct a 10-foot wall around the family's property to keep out the influence of the outside world. Oh. We wouldn't want any of those nosy sinners coming around, you know? Okie dokie. All John was allowed to do, aside from read his Bible, was learn to play religious songs on the piano. And he actually became quite the accomplished pianist, as we will see here in a bit. Okay. So he's really good at it. Well, well you get good when that's the only thing you have to do. do anything but read the Bible or play Hallelujah on the piano. Sounds Absolutely. Sounds fantastically fun. Wonderful job at To give you an example of the kind of extreme religious ideas that John Sr. put into his son's head, John Sr. had a large bluish birthmark on his forehead, and he would tell his son that this was the mark of a sinner because he had misbehaved during his youth. And listen, I know that we play around with our kids and we tell them weird stuff all the time, like freckles or angel kisses or, you know, whatever. But to seriously make them grow up and think that if they sin, God's going to put a huge-ass mark on your forehead, that could be damaging. Um, Yeah, I mean, that's good. I mean, that would kind of mess me up. (laughs) We see that this affected John later on and apparently caused him a great deal of anxiety because, according to John, when he was about 16, he indulged in some sinful, typical teenage behavior, as one typically does. And he was absolutely shocked to see that he wasn't plagued by a large blue mark on his forehead, as his father so relentlessly told Wait, him would happen. happen. Yeah. So this, I believe, began his affinity for not always making the best decisions and possibly even established his sociopathic patterns of behavior down the I road. I could see that. I could see that if you're, you know, you're taught. If you do anything bad and you sin, then you're going to have this blemish or this mark put upon you. And, and then you it, sin. You, oops, I did it and it didn't happen. It's like, oh, I can do whatever I want. Yeah, I'm just going to be bad all the time. Screw well, it. If happens to me, I'm good. Yeah, absolutely. Screw the system. As far as school goes, John was an okay student. He seemed to excel in the subjects that he cared about and was kind of mediocre in the subjects he found boring. So, Sounds typical. like every kid. Yeah. His parents let him be involved in the school's choir. 
I guess I would guess because he attended a religious school of some sort and that it was acceptable for him to participate in this activity, you know, but at least it socialized him a little bit. A little bit, something. John was bullied in school, though, and to release his frustration and anger, he would just do cruel things like swiping the school's organist's bench out from underneath her while she was playing, just being a little dick. Wow. Yeah, it's a dick move. His cruelty did apparently get a little darker, though. One report I read said that the school he attended had some hogs on the property, and John decided to chase one around until the hog collapsed and died from exhaustion. That's a lot of work, it sounds like. But he was that dedicated to torturing this poor pig. A lot of work. Yeah, that's just insane. I've never heard of anything like that. Well, it is England. to do with anything. I don't know. <laughs> is that just your two cents? That's my two cents. On well, it is England. Well, it is England. They do weird things over there. Good I'm just job. Kidding. Sorry, Tracy. Um. Oh my gosh. So now when John left school, he had no interest in doing what the other boys were doing, which was either entering the workforce or joining the armed forces. By now, John had many other interests to include his appearance. He was... I I guess you could say a dapper, well-dressed guy. He liked to stay clean cut and keep his appearance nice and tidy. And he loved dressing to the nines. He likes materialistic things. That's back in the day when it was like gangster, just walk around like a three-piece suit. Like Peaky Peaky Blinders. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Everybody dressed That's him. So John also loved cars, like loved them. And he wanted to do something that involved vehicles after school. So he became an apprentice at a motor engineering firm right out of school. However, as we will see, John isn't a big fan of working for a living. And he absolutely despised manual labor and getting dirty. In fact, he was known all the way until the end to wear gloves because he hated to get his hands dirty. Mm, So even in the summer, he would wear gloves. And he especially didn't want to work in a dirty garage. So after about a year, he gave all this up. He definitely was one of those guys that had really soft hands. Yeah, I was going to say, he has some soft hands. (laughs) He then decided to take on a job as an underwriter for insurance and advertising. Mm -hmm. And he actually was really successful in this position until he started committing fraud. Yeah, when you started talking about being greed, I was sitting in my head. Uh-oh. I was like, there's got to be insurance fraud or something. Oh, for sure. Apparently, what he would do, he would sell cars to people that didn't exist and use the profits to buy himself a fairly nice vehicle or two. Some reports I found say at one time he owned three rather nice vehicles straight out of like their equivalent of high school. <laughs> he owned three vehicles. That's crazy. Okay. But it wouldn't be long before he was caught and fired. And pretty damn lucky that he wasn't uh, reported to authorities, I would say, that first time. So it seemed for a bit like John was getting his act together after this incident, however. (laughs) In 1934, John met a 21-year-old young woman named Beatrice Hammer, also known as Betty. And the Betty two, Hammer. yeah, Betty Hammer. Okay, that's a pretty badass name. And the two married after only knowing each other for a very short amount of time. 
They married on July 6, 1934, and instead of working for a living to support his new family, John started forging documents again and committing vehicular fraud. Mm. It's hard to say. Easy money before, so that's why not do it again. Yeah. So he hadn't learned his lesson by any means. Well, he didn't get his blemish. (laughs) Yeah. Well, he didn't go to jail, so why not keep doing it? Exactly. This time, though, he was caught and sentenced to 15 months in prison. So he was caught this time. First stint in prison. During this prison sentence, Betty, his wife, found out that she was pregnant with a child. And with no money and no way to support a kid on her own, because her husband's in jail, she was forced to give the baby up for adoption. No. I know. She was obviously feeling super pissed and super betrayed, so it comes as no surprise that she divorced John while he was still in prison. Yeah. And not only did his wife divorce him, but his mom and dad turned their backs on him. Well, he's in prison. Yeah, they're very religious. So they turned their backs completely on their son after they learned that he had committed criminal acts of any sort because that's not very biblical, of course, and they couldn't support such behavior. They also weren't too happy about his divorce and the child that was given up for adoption, I'm sure. Yeah, he had the trifecta on that one. Yeah. So John is completely on his own now, out of jail. His parents are done with him. Betty is out of the picture, his wife. So what's the plan after he gets out of prison? Make some money. Once John was released in 1936, he had no opportunities and no one around that wanted anything to do with him. So he decided to relocate where no one would know him and try his hand at uh, living in London. More people to con there, right? (laughs) Many more people there. Once there, he charmed a man named William McSwan into hiring him as his personal chauffeur. So McSwan owned a pinball machine company, which I thought was kind of (laughs) cool. Do you like pinball, Pat? I haven't played pinball since like you were, the 90s. You were a wee lad? <laughs> a wee lad? A wee lad. <laughs> so McSwan owned a pinball <laughs> machine company, and he was also the son of a fairly well-off family who owned a few properties. So he was no doubt wealthy. Yeah. If you can afford a chauffeur, you're not doing too shabby, I'm I would say. Right. You're doing okay. <laughs> One thing about con men, they know how to woo you, and William McSwan fell for John Hayes' game, Hook, Line, and Sinker. Not only did McSwan hire John, but the two also became really good close friends. I'm sure they did. Such good friends, in fact, that it wasn't long before McSwan introduced John to his parents, Donald and Amy. And they just loved him right away. It was like another son of theirs. After working for William for about a year, John, as usual, got tired of working for a living. It's hard hard to do. Sucks. So he embarked on perhaps one of the dumbest ventures in the whole world. Oh, goodness. Okay, get this. For whatever reason, John decided it would be a good idea to pose as a solicitor, which is kind of like a lawyer in the UK. Okay. And we know John's not a lawyer. No, he's not. Okay. So for whatever reason, John decided that was a great idea. And he even rented a space and set up a law office and got himself a few paying clients. Well, when he would receive checks for services from these clients, John would cash them, but never, of course, provide any services because he doesn't know how. Then... When the pissed off clients would come knocking, he would up and get a new office and just relocate. <laughs> okay. 
So this had to have been like exhausting. That's a lot of work. Every time you get a pissed off client, like, why didn't you do what I asked you to do? I paid you all this money. Where are you? He, he just wasn't there anymore. He dipped. Yeah, he dipped. Anyways, with all of the reports coming in from disgruntled customers, John's little scheme eventually caught up with him, and he found himself back behind bars for more fraud charges. You don't say. This time, he, though, he was sentenced to four years in prison, so a little more time this, to sit and think time. about what he's done. You just sit in your corner, sir. <laughs> You've heard the old saying, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result? Yeah. Well, John's not stupid, really. I mean, kind of, but not really. John was doing the same thing over and over again, and he kept getting caught. So he knew that he was going to have to try something new. Gotta change it up, man. Other than working for a living, of course, because who wants to do that? Ew. Fuck that nonsense. Yeah, absolutely. Which, same. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Yeah, I'm not, I get it. Trust it sucks, me. right? But. But you still got it. Still got to do it. This time, while behind bars, John used his time wisely. See, the issue he kept running into was he always had a victim of his fraudulent behavior to rat him out. And what he needed was for there to be no No victim. victim. No one to rat him out, then no one's going to go to the cops about him. Yeah. Makes sense. So John, having nothing but time, got his hands on a few law books, and he came across the term, the uh, Latin legal term, Corpus delicti, which he basically took to mean uh, nobody, nobody, no crime. So we're going to circle back to this in a bit because there's a lot to unpack there. Okay. Yeah. He he didn't really grasp the full concept of that. I'm sure he wasn't really trying that hard. (laughs) No, no. So how do you dispose of a body in its entirety? Well, he got to work reading and studying, and he started to read books about French serial killer George Alexander Saray, who dissolved his victims' bodies in sulfuric acid after he stole their money from them. And John was like, oh my God, goals. Goals. No body, no victim. Yeah. So John set, uh, was set on the idea of learning how to dissolve bodies in acid. He thought up a plan. He started working in the prison's metal shop, not because he was interested in metal work, but because the shop regularly used sulfuric acid. Now, he just needed something that was living to practice on. Mm. A lot of prisoners at the time were part of a work release program. They would leave for the day to attend a job outside prison walls and then return in the evening. John wasn't a part of this program, of course, because he was a repeat offender. So he enlisted the help of a few prisoners who were able to leave the prison grounds for the day to bring him back some mice. Okay. John then went on to see how long it took for a mouse to dissolve in sulfuric acid. And he found that it took about a half an hour for the mouse to completely dissolve without any trace. No trace. What the fuck do they do in prison over there that's <laughs> conducting experiments? To he is. It's crazy. Like, is nobody seeing him? Like, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, what the fuck do they do? Or other there? prisoners just like, do you just want a pet? What are you doing with these mice? <laughs> no one in an entire prison is like, hey, why is that dude putting shit in the acid? <laughs> and timing it. I know, exactly. So after he dissolved, the, like, it took a half an hour for a mouse to dissolve fully. 
So then he multiplied that by however many times, and to him, he felt like he had a pretty solid plan to start totally disposing of human bodies once he was a free man. Mm-hmm. He did the maths. I'm sure. So as you can see, John used his time behind bars very constructively. Apparently. He was a man with a plan now. Not the fucking science guy over there. <laughs> I know he's doing Mythbusters. Oh, <laughs> he's conducting straight up experiments in prison. Jeez. So John was released from prison in 1944. A few weeks later, he found himself at a bar having a beer when he heard a familiar voice, and it was his old pal and employer, William McSwan. Remember him, mm-hmm. the pinball guy? Pinball. The pinball wizard. <laughs> so, yeah, and he had chauffeured for him years ago. Of course, John wasn't like, hey, I've been in prison for four years. But he told McSwan that he had been off serving and fighting in World War II since that was in full swing at yeah. the time. Oh, yeah. So the two old pals chatted on and on that evening, just like old times, and they agreed to meet up at a local pub in Kensington High Street called The Goat for a few drinks on September 9th. And by this time, John had rented himself a little workshop located on Gloucester Gloucester Road. I think it's Gloucester Road. I'm so sorry if you're from England and you're like, oh my God. Stupid American. Stupid Texas woman. Yeah. She's over here butchering the language when she's saying things like, howdy y'all. Howdy y'all. I think it's Gloucester. <laughs> so the Isn't that like Gloucester or something like that? Glo- I think it's Gloucester. I have no idea. We're going to spend way too much time right on this section right here, aren't we? Yeah, we okay. are. I'm, just, I'm cool with it. I'm cool with it. <laughs> so it was on a road that starts with the G. <laughs> Not important. <laughs> it's on G road. <laughs> Not important. So the two were at the pub getting tipsy. And John says, hey, you want to come back to see my workshop? (laughs) And William was like, fuck yeah, I do. So the two head to the workshop, and as soon as William enters, John struck him over the head with a metal pole. I love the the way you mimic the actions while you're talking on the podcast. Yeah. For those of you that are... I'm very... For those of you that can't see you other than me, you're over here like striking someone on the head as you're telling the story. I'm breaking a damn sweat over here for y'all. You don't even know it. Oh, man. (laughs) That's hilarious. <laughs> Sorry, I just noticed that. That's, that's cracking me. <laughs> Getting an arm workout. Then to finish him off, so he struck William over the head with a metal pole, and he pulls out a knife, and he cuts his throat. Oh, I hate to say that. I'm sorry. And it is going to get kind of gross here. Just saying. According to John's diary entry, he later writes that after he slits his throat, he drank William's blood. However, I'll let you decide if you think that's true or not when we come back to that later because I think it's BS. So maybe don't hang too much on that. We're not dealing with another vampire, I don't think. Anyways, with William dead, John hoisted the man up and dumped him in a 40-gallon drum filled with sulfuric acid. One thing John didn't account for... Although he knew to protect his hands with gloves and wear protective clothing, he didn't think to wear a mask or goggles to protect his eyes, nose, and mouth. Wow. (laughs) That's like the first thing you need to wear besides gloves. As the acid was dissolving William's body, the fumes became so toxic that John had to, like, leave for the night. He was getting sick. It was awful. You can imagine how horrible it is. The next part is a little gross. Because if you're eating, you need to stop. So 
Put your snack down. Okay. So John left and came back the next day to find that William's body had reduced to a pile of, like, sludge. And he found that it had just the right consistency that he could dispose of the goo down the drain. Lovely. Mm. So John would later say that completing this seemingly perfect murder gave him a sense of euphoria and accomplishment. And you know what else gives you that feeling? Working hard at something other than killing people and melting them in sulfuric acid. But whatever. Who am I to judge, right? I was going to say sex, but okay. Sex. (laughs) God. (laughs) You're so dumb. I I know. (laughs) You're a child. Big time child. (laughs) Now, this was just the first part of John's plan. Killing the person was only step one. Now he had to get their money. John was willing to be patient now, so he was in it for the long con. So he came up with, like like I just said, a long con of sorts, and you're going to be surprised at just how patient this guy is. He went to vi- visit William's parents, Donald and Amy McSwan, and he told them that their son was essentially dodging the draft, which was very believable at the time. Right. He had gone into hiding somewhere far away to avoid the war. And... Like, with this political climate, this was not a far-fetched story, so Mr. and Mrs. McSwan absolutely fell for it. World War II is in full swing, and boys are being suited up and shipped out of England left and right to go and fight. It's not hard to believe that their son was trying to avoid that. What is hard to believe is that John regularly kept up this ruse for nearly a year. He even went as far as to send Mr. and Mrs. McSwan postcards, supposedly written by their son in hiding. So they honestly didn't suspect a damn thing. That's crazy. At all. Even more impressive and a testament to just how charming John is. During this year, he was allowed to live in their dead son's home. Oh. (laughs) The balls, right? Seriously. But this wasn't the big money that John was after. He knew that Mr. and Mrs. McSwan was the real meal ticket, because that's where William's money came from, most of it, from his parents. So on July 2nd, 1945, it was time for John to execute the next step in his plan to acquire the McSwan's wealth. So John went to visit the elderly couple at their home, just like he had done so many times before. And once there, he struck both Donald and Amy McSwan over the head to incapacitate them before slitting their throats. He then loaded up their bodies and transported them to his workshop, where he just so happened to have two 40-gallon drums of sulfuric acid waiting. What the fuck is this dude getting all this acid from? <laughs> Without, um, I think back then you could get them at, like, pharmacy. He probably went to multiple pharmacies around town. You'd have town. to go to a shit ton to get that Oh, absolutely, acid. to dissolve a body. And wouldn't you have to refill the acid after every victim? Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of sulfuric acid. <laughs> So he tossed uh, them in each drum. Each body had their own drum, and they he waited for them to dissolve. Which, if you're wondering, it takes about 48 hours for a human body to dissolve in sulfuric acid. I looked it up so you don't have to, because I know I'm already flagged by the of FBI. Of course you <laughs> looked it up. Why would you not look that up? If any other human being told me I looked up how long it takes to dissolve a body in sulfuric acid, I'd be like, why? You? I'm like, oh, okay. It's like a Tuesday. <laughs> I mean, bat and I, I'm like, okay, when's dinner? Like, what are you talking about? 
Oh my gosh. I do it for y'all. So y'all don't have you to. You did it before we did the podcast. Well, yeah, I had to come. <laughs> I'm not going to be ill prepared. <laughs> no, I mean, you did it before we even started this thing. You looked that stuff up. Yeah, I have questions, okay? Hey, no I need answers. <laughs> so, in those roughly two days while he was waiting for Donald and Amy McSwan to dissolve, he started taking the steps he needed to in order to obtain their wealth. He first went to the McSwan's landlady and told her that the McSwan's had embarked on a last-minute trip to America and that all their mail, as well as William's mail, needed to be forwarded to him so that he could handle all of, the, all of their affairs. Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. Then John got to work perfecting on forging William's signature and even got power of attorney over all of the properties that the McSwan's owned. Okay. Damn. I don't think that would fly today. No, 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 no. Because John had gotten away with the lie for over a year that William was hiding out in another country, he was even able to collect William's pension checks for him. Yes, I mean, even even getting the power of attorney and stuff back then, mm-hmm. they didn't require, like, IDs and stuff. To, to do yeah. a power of attorney, you have to get it signed in front of a notary nowadays with an ID. So, like, you have to verify who you are to even sign it mm-hmm. to make, for it to be valid. So yeah. back then they didn't. They could just, oh, he signed it? Cool. Also, he forged the deed to one of the properties and placed it under a false name before selling it. In doing this, he profited almost 2,000 pounds in the process. I did the conversion so you don't have to. 2,000 pounds back then in 1945 is equal to roughly 95,943 pounds in 2022. That's a nice chunk of change. For actually, for literally nothing. It's not a real <clears throat> sale. You forged a document that's not real. Yeah, absolutely. However, John didn't feel like this was enough. (laughs) It's not enough money for him. So he went ahead and sold all of the McSwan's properties that they owned. And he ended up profiting a total of 6,000 pounds or 287,829 pounds in today's currency. Not bad. John was ecstatic and high on the fact that he felt like he had committed the absolute perfect crime. However, money doesn't last forever, especially when you're John and you're a big spender. On acid. (laughs) On sulfuric acid, cars, and clothes. Unfortunately, it wouldn't take long before he was scouting for his next victim. And we're going to find out who that is next after this real quick ad break. So a lot of times in these horrific tales, we see that after a killer or a killer strike, they like to put some distance between themselves and their last crime. And John Hay is no different. He knew he couldn't stay where he was. So he quickly moved all of his murder tools and drums (laughs) and chemicals (laughs) to another location and rented a workshop in Crawley, Sussex. Also, since John was such a big spender, he was blowing through his money rather quickly on cars, clothes, and parties. So he immediately started looking for his next victim. In 1947, John befriended Dr. Archibald Henderson and his wife Rose when they put their house on on the oh excuse me. I had to cough when they put their house on the market. <laughs> 
You didn't even cough. I didn't even cough. I had to swallow hard, though, so I wouldn't cough. I didn't want to cough into the mic. That was weird. Okay. I know. <laughs> My body is very weird. Well, John caught wind of the Henderson's intent to sell their property, so he approached them with an offer way above asking price. The Hendersons and John, after that, became friends of sorts, and John was able to get really close to the couple, uh, close enough to learn that although not as wealthy as the McSwans, the Hendersons were far from poor. Yeah. So in February of 1948, John decided that the couple would be his next victims. John wanted to be careful this time. The Hendersons were not weak and elderly like the McSwans, so he needed to kill each of them separately. With the McSwans, they were older. And yeah, he could, yeah, it's yeah. definitely easier with an older couple. So he came up with the idea to convince Dr. Henderson to come to his workshop to see a new invention that he had been working on. And the tub of acid. <laughs> and he picked up Dr. Henderson from where he was living with his wife, which was the Metropole Hotel in Brighton. And the pair drove to uh, John's workshop in Crawley. Also in this story, side note, I noticed a lot of people live in hotels when they're wealthy. Back then, at least. Kind of weird, huh? It was a little strange. As soon as they entered the workshop, uh, Dr. Henderson, not suspecting a thing, he's just there to check out John's invention. Mm -hmm. John took out a revolver and shot the doctor in the head. Okay. And guess where John got the revolver from? He stole it from Dr. Henderson a few days earlier. Oh, so nice. the doctor was killed with his own damn gun. So dude jacks his gun, mm-hmm. brings it into his acid laboratory. Laboratory. Shoots him in the face with a gun. Okay. This guy's kind of an asshole, but okay. So after checking to make sure that Henderson was dead, John hoisted the man into the drum of acid before heading back to the Metro Hotel to fetch his wife, Rose. Yeah. When John showed up back at the hotel without her husband... Rose immediately asked, of course, where her husband was, and being the convincing con man that he is, John explained to Rose that Dr. Henderson had fallen ill while tinkering with his invention at his workshop and that she needed to accompany him right away so that she could be by his side. Mm-hmm. And she was like, oh, my God, okay. So, of course, Rose went with John back to the workshop. Like her husband, Rose was immediately shot in the head with a stolen revolver before being placed in a tub of acid alongside her husband. Now on to the profitable part of John's plan. While the bodies dissolved, John returned to the couple's hotel and paid their bill. <laughs> he did Not this. To raise suspicions. Yeah, he did this to make it look like the Hendersons had decided to move out of their room. He very, he very, he they're ready to move on. You mean he, he closes all his loose ends for the most He's part. not stupid, I don't think. He then went into their room and took everything that was valuable so that he could sell it later on. And just by selling what he found in that hotel room, John would stand to profit a total of 8,000 pounds or $323,306 today in 2022. I mean, pounds today in 2022. So he's doing all right. Yep. He's not doing bad. And oddly enough, he even kept the Henderson's beloved dog. Yeah. Which is odd to me because I feel like that could get him noticed. He's pretty brazen. Pretty ballsy. I'll give him that. But uh, he didn't kill the dog. He kept it. And that remained his dog. At least the dog was fine. 
<laughs> right? I hate when these bastards kill the dogs. Oh my god, it's just the worst. It's like, why? <laughs> what did the dog do to you? What did the dog do to you? John knew that the Hendersons had friends and family that would miss them. So he started forging letters to Rose Henderson's brother to make it look like the couple was still alive. Mm-hmm. He explained to her brother, God, he came up with some shit. He, he explained to her brother through various letters that Dr. Henderson, Rose's husband, had been performing illegal abortions. And to escape the law, both Rose and the doctor had to flee to South Africa. Where does he get this shit? Definitely an A for effort. No, I mean, he's creative. You gotta give him that. He's fucking creative. And get this. He had stolen a lot of Rose Henderson's nice clothes. Well, instead of selling them, he gifted them to a young woman he was now dating, a girl named Barbara, who was only like 15, some reports say. Jesus. Yeah, gross. So, and he probably, you know, he probably told Barbara that he bought the clothes for her. Oh, of course. Ass hat. So as we see, John is getting pretty cocky. He's thinking now he's untouchable. And with that, he starts to get a little sloppy. And yeah. we like it when they do that because well, they then he gets caught. They get, when they get overconfident, they start slipping up because they're not as cautious. You never know. If he would have stopped here, he may have not been caught. You know? Maybe. Who knows? But he didn't stop here. And the disposal of his last victims, though, like, like I said, he's getting sloppy. He noticed at the bottom of the barrel that he dissolved them in that one of Rose Henderson's feet hadn't fully dissolved. Sulfuric acid isn't an, an exact science per se. Some of the body parts don't dissolve depending on their composition. Right. You never know. And I mean, just think teeth, fillings, all kinds of things that wouldn't necessarily dissolve. So instead of being bothered with this, he just tipped out what remained of poor Rose into the corner of the property, like on the grass where his workshop was located. It's like, I'll just put it there. I'll leave it there. He didn't even bother to bury it or anything. He just like dumped it. Okay. It's just, he doesn't care anymore. He's just ridiculously stupid. Yeah. And no, it's so, he's strange to me because he is very methodical. He's very organized. And then sometimes he's just really, he does these crazy, stupid things. I don't, I don't get it. I think he's not right. In the head. Yeah, probably so. I, I think it was his dad telling him about the mark of the devil on his forehead if he messed up. I think it just caused him to have a screw loose. <laughs> no, I think he was just messed up in the head. Like, Maybe. I, don't, I don't know if that caused him to have a screw loose. I think he's got some sort of... Well, he's super sociopathic and narcissistic. We know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, that's, 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 that's weird. So let's get on to his final victim. Okay. Almost exactly one year after the murders of Dr. and Mrs. Henderson, John was living the high life. His place of residence was the prestigious Onslow Court Hotel in South Kensington. We see another motherfucker living at a hotel. It's crazy. We live in hotels. All right, whatever. And nice hotels. He stood out, though, at this hotel. The main residents were wealthy, older women. And then here was this, like... (laughs) Random ass guy, thirty year old, younger guy, yeah. But I mean, he was charming enough and got along with every. Of course, he was charming. Got along with everybody, made friends, and with John's expensive tastes uh, and need to impress strangers and his love of gambling, his money, of course, all over three hundred thousand of it had run out by February of nineteen forty nine. In search for his next victim, he set his sights on sixty nine year old uh, Onslow resident. Mrs. Olive Duran Deacon. 
a fascinating woman who would ultimately lead to John Hay's downfall. Now, Mrs. Deacon wasn't just any old lady. (laughs) She was a firecracker. She was the very wealthy widow of a renowned war hero. And to her own credit, she was extremely active in the women's suffrage movement in the younger years. She even got thrown in jail once for throwing a brick through a window. She was kind of a badass bitch. In her older years, she very much enjoyed having tea with her other socialite friends and meeting new and interesting people at the Onslow. On one such occasion, she sat down to have a drink with a guy named John Hay and was very impressed with this nice, dapper young man. John had told her that he was a very accomplished engineer and inventor. He's, uh, he's not. Okay, no, yeah. Inventor. What did he invent? Did drum of acid? <laughs> Olive thought that this must be fate, the meeting, um, because she had come up with a very innovative idea for creating false fingernails. This was before the day of kiss press on nails. <laughs> right, right, right. She's like a pioneer. Of yeah. So on February 18th, John graciously invited the elderly widow to his workshop to further discuss her idea, and um, he was going to design it for her. And yeah, I'm sure he was. She readily accepted The pair left the Onslow Hotel together and drove to Crowley. As soon as she entered his workshop, John shot Mrs. Deacon in the head. And then he removed, 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 removed. (laughs) Sounds like animal. (laughs) 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 Uh Okay, (laughs) we're getting slap happy here. Wow. What just happened? I don't know. He, I'm rebooting. <laughs> You're rebooting, and all the, I'm here hearing voices in my head from all these cartoons right now. <laughs> like the Swedish Chef. I know you're doing the Swedish Chef. Swedish Chef, and that one that man, that one Animal. sketch comedy where they the guy was being goofy, like mm-hmm. the goot, the character goofy. He's like, "Where's my fucking money?" <laughs> <laughs> that's what, that's what I'm hearing in my head right now. I think I lost it. Oh, yeah, crazy. We both did. <laughs> Where's my fucking money? Where's my fucking money? <laughs> oh my god. Okay, so as <laughs> that, that was a quick transition. Holy cow! To recap, he did shoot poor Mrs. Deacon in the head, and then he had to remove her fur coat and all of her valuable jewelry before dumping her body into his drum. Well, yeah, that's money right acid. There. Now the issue with Olive Durand Deacon going missing was that she was such a popular resident of the Onslow Hotel. So within 48 hours of her not being around and socializing, her friend and fellow Onslow resident, Constance Lane, was getting super worried. Like, where's this bitch? Yeah, she missed one, tea with me. And, and they, they, she's probably one of these ladies that everyone knows there's like not just going to up and leave one day. Like, she's exactly. planted in this Like, place. we like were supposed foundation. to come to tea. She would not miss tea, yeah. you know? That We've kind been of doing thing. this for 10 years. She ain't going nowhere. Yeah, or longer. Who yeah. knows? So surprisingly, <laughs> okay, surprisingly, John volunteered to drive Constance to the police station to go report her friend missing. So he's involving himself, as they do, narcissists, Such a in, guy. to the investigation. When John took Constance to the police station, a policewoman by the name of Sergeant Lamborn was instantly suspicious of John. She just didn't like him. She didn't really have a reason, but she was a smart lady, and I think she kind of knew a douche sickle when she saw one, and he was a douche sickle. It's very 
weird that, like, this random 40-year-old dude's been hanging out with these old women. Like, what's your end game, bro? That like, kind of thing. They're like, how do you know him? Oh, he started hanging out with us recently. Oh, and now this lady's missing? Yeah, mm. exactly. Her suspicions led to investigators looking into his background. And while police were quietly looking into Hay, he decided to do a little cleaning up. Remember, this was only like two days after he murdered Mrs. Deacon and dumped her in the acid. So she had been, quote, dissolving for all this time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So John went to his workshop and emptied the 40-gallon drum of whatever was left of her into the corner of his property, just like he had done with the Hendersons. He then went to a nearby pawn shop of sorts and had some appraisals done um, and sold Mrs. Deacon's fine jewelry. Right. To John, he had gotten away with murder, nothing to worry about. However, what he didn't realize was that when police looked into him, they found that he had rented a workshop in Crawley. Hmm. Hmm. And what they were about to find in that workshop you could say that it would shock them a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> they hadn't seen a, something like this before. Yeah. Kind of it wasn't exactly what they had expected it's for sure. going to walk in there and see a car lift and some tools. And exactly. So on Saturday, February 26th, police gained entry into John Hay's workshop. And Hay wasn't there, by the way, but they literally didn't miss him by much. Uh, he, he had just cleaned up, well, cleaned up to the best of his ability. When they entered, they found... Uh, empty and half-full carboys, which I looked it up. They're basically 10-gallon glass bottles with narrow necks used to contain sulfuric acid. And they found a rubber apron and a gas mask. Mm, Okay. (laughs) They also found a 38 infilled revolver that, to investigators, appeared to have been fired recently. Patrick, how can they tell that? I don't know. Uh, I mean... You can, it's pretty easy when you look at a gun. You can tell if it's got fresh gunshot residue, like gunpowder. It wouldn't still be hot or anything. If this it was is just days. used. Oh, yeah, yeah. A few, a few days, though. I mean, you've seen it when every time like, we go shooting or something like that and you have to clean the gun afterwards. There's yeah. residue, there's gunpowder. Yeah, like black stuff. That so you can tell in. if it's been cleaned or if it's been fired gotcha. semi-recently. Yeah. Because the, the longer it's on there, the more it turns into like a sludge. Ew, okay. And it kind of just, because it picks up all the other contaminants and all the other things in the air. I got you. You leave it on there for a long time, it turns into like, it hardens and it's, it's just messy. You can tell it's I see. So they could tell, yeah, that this revolver had been fired fairly recently. Probably not exactly when. Oh, yeah. They're not going to be able to look at it, especially back then. It's like, oh, this was fired 27 hours ago. But they're going to be like, somebody shot this thing recently. You right, know, also, right, too, right. If he, if he didn't reload it, it may have two or three, one or two. Expanded. Rounds in the chamber. Yeah, because it's a revolver. So it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't extract and eject after. Right, right. So they could just pop it open and be like, wow, there's six shots and three of them have been fired. Yeah. Which probably was Which the is weird. It's probably case. exactly how it is, but most people don't carry a gun half-loaded like that on a revolver. No, it's going to be fully loaded. You tend to load it after you use it. Well, you only have to load six, so why stop at three? Even if you shoot one or two with the revolver, you're going to want to reload it because yeah. you have to use it. You don't know which one's got the empty room. Exactly. And the next finding uh, was pretty significant. In a briefcase, they found a dry-cleaning receipt for a black Persian coat made of lambskin a coat that investigators knew to belong to Olive Duran Deacon. During Olive's murder, blood had soaked onto that coat that she was wearing. So John just took it to the dry cleaners after the murder. Okay. <laughs> I'm so glad that he's stupid. He's stupid. Yeah. So it's not looking so good for John, and it's just going to get worse. So buckle up. A few days after the initial search of John Hayes' workshop, 
A pawn shop owner came forward informing police that a man matching um, or his description going by the name of Jay McLean came in and pawned off all the jewelry that Mrs. Deacon's family would later identify as belonging to the elderly lady. Right. When shown a photo of John Hay, the pawn shop owner was like, yeah, that's definitely him. <laughs> I remember, I mean, because it was a ton of valuable stuff. It's, we- it's weird. It's yeah. It shows up with all that stuff, and then all of a sudden you hear about a murder and people missing, and you're like, hmm. But this is the part that I find very interesting. Uh, there would be even more evidence revealed the following day on March 1st when a pathologist went into John's workshop to investigate. He first noticed some blood staining on the wall, splatter, mm-hmm. probably from the shootings. Yep. Or, even from the, or the throat being cut. Or, or if you hit someone hard enough with a pipe or a bat, you get yeah. blood splatter. And when he looked at the bottom of the 40-gallon barrels, he noticed a hat pin in one of them. But then he decided to go and look around outside the property, mm-hmm. which nobody thought to do before. And lo and behold, he found the sludge. The gooey remains of John's victims that he so carelessly and callously dumped in the corner of the yard. Yes. You see, sulfuric acid, like I was saying before, won't necessarily dissolve everything. It is not a exact science. No, it's a very strong means. acid, but it is not the most strong. It won't dissolve everything. Like obviously, you can store it in a fifty-five gallon drum. Yeah, and it's not going to eat the drum, drum right? Yeah. yeah. So there's certain things that, depending on their chemical composition, like you said before. Yeah, and we're going to find out exactly what those it's are. Fucking, fucking science! Boom. Boom. In fact, in that sludge, the pathologist and his team located the following. This is what didn't dissolve. Three human gallstones, 28 pounds of human fat, 18 fragments of human bone, a portion of a left foot, upper and lower dentures, a lipstick container, a red plastic bag handle, and two vertebral discs from a human spine. The dentures particularly intrigued the investigators, so they took them to Mrs. Deacon's dentist, and lo and behold, those dentures belonged to Olive Duran Deacon. And if that wasn't enough, they also found paperwork at the workshop regarding um, the McSwans and the Hendersons' business, we'll say. All the bullshit he was doing. Yeah. So basically, all that's left to do is go get John and get a confession, because you want a confession. For Back sure. then, of course. And they didn't confession. have a body. Yeah. Well, they, they had parts. So police went to the Onslow Hotel and brought John Hay in for questioning. He went voluntarily. He just, they invited him. It's like, hey, yeah, I got nothing to hide, man. I have, yeah, I'm not busy. I'll stop by. They informed him of the evidence they found in his workshop regarding Olive Duran Deacon. And his response to that was effectively, <laughs> so uh, has anyone ever been released from Broadmoor before? Okay, Broadmoor was a high-security psychiatric hospital, so that's an awfully weird question to ask when being presented with evidence yeah, of murdering strange. someone. Why do you want to know? <laughs> what does that have to How do with anything? To go away for? The, t- the detective questioning John, Detective Webb, said that he couldn't really answer that because you're weird. Why so would you ask that? Question, After a few moments of silence... John Hay was like, okay. So he just went ahead and confessed to the murder of Olive Durant Deacon. And after an hour or so, he went ahead and confessed to the murders of William McSwan, his parents, Donald and Amy McSwan, as well as Dr. and Mr. Mrs. Henderson. However, that wasn't all. John was claiming to have killed 
three other people that police had never heard of before. John claimed that he once killed a young man that he knew only as Max, um, as well as a young woman from Hammersmith. He didn't know her name. And a young girl named Mary from Eastbourne. None of these alleged murders could ever be confirmed to this day. They haven't been confirmed. So no one was ever reported missing matching John's description of these victims or in the location. I think he's just fucking adding to like his ego. Well, we'll see. We'll see what's going on because I thought that too, but I see what he's doing. Right. But I mean, I I get that. I'm just saying they don't fit. You wouldn't believe he did those murders because his other murders are so calculated. And so, yeah. You know, he knows everything about them because he's conning them, right? Yeah. Oh, everything. Oh, I, I just randomly murdered three people. I he didn't wouldn't even know their name. randomly murder anybody. I didn't even know their name. Bullshit. When you everybody you've killed, you knew everything about. He them. only murders to benefit himself yeah. financially, yeah. and he would know their last name and names and everything. But you see, the reason John was so happy to keep confessing to all these murders was that he was under the incorrect impression that corpus delicti, remember the mm-hmm. Latin. Nobody knows. Law term he studied while in prison. Yeah. Meant that if there was no body, then there was no evidence. However, the term actually is referring to a body of evidence, not a physical human body. (laughs) (laughs) So, which police had plenty of. They had a lot of evidence. Shit ton of evidence. So, yeah, it's not referring to an actual human body. They literally have the smoking gun. So in John's very sociopathic, narcissistic mind, he wanted to claim to kill as many people as possible because he felt that he couldn't be charged. Like, I can claim 100 people. Yeah, I'm going to go down in history. But John quickly found out that that wasn't going to work. (laughs) Uh, The police had more than enough to charge John with six murders and bring him to trial. So in a panic, John had to hurry up and figure out another way to Another con? Yeah, another con. And he had one up his sleeve. John then went on to claim that he had um, drunk each of his victims' blood. He claimed that since he was a young boy, he had been plagued with apparitions and hallucinations of entities that demanded that he drink blood. So he had to start killing to quiet those voices. He's playing crazy. Before we get too excited here about having another vampire killer on our hands, just know that this was setting the stage for John Hay to take an insanity defense. Yeah, 100%. That's his only option, to avoid hanging. Hang his ass. Even if he's crazy. On July 18th, 1949, John's trial took place in the Old Town Hall. 4,000 people crammed into the courtroom. 4,000 people. I'm sure his story... Oh, it was a spectacle, a circus. You can imagine. One, it's all high-class, high-society people. Two, he's boiling them in acid. Well, and in the papers, they put the vampire killer. So everyone's like, this is like a storybook. Now he's in there claiming to be a vampire, of course, so the media's running with that. Yeah, no, it's a huge spectacle. Yeah, who could blame him? The local papers have been running stories about the vampire killer who drank his victim's blood, then dissolved bodies into tubs of acid, and they were just curious, to say the least. And I'll post pictures of the articles I found. They're really cool. I love archived old, old papers. I was say old-time paper. Yeah. This trial was crazy in that it was so short. In fact, the whole damn trial, from start to finish, took place over the span of one day. One day. Psychiatrists hired by the prosecutor to evaluate John all took the stand and claimed that he's perfectly sane. Like he knew what he's he was doing. He's making this shit up. Yeah. With the overwhelming forensic evidence, the defense just didn't stand a chance. 
A jury found John Hay guilty of murdering six people and sentenced him to death by hanging. And this was before England banned the death penalty. They no longer had it. Right. Which I'm not too hurt that he was sentenced to hanging, are you? Nope. I'm good with it. He would have kept on killing. He would have kept killing as long as he needed money for it. While he awaited his sentence, John's parents, who were too old to travel by this time, never came to visit him before his execution. However, his teenage girlfriend, Barbara, did. She came to see him. But it was mostly out of curiosity, not support. No, it was like, who the fuck are you? Like, I need to see you one more time now that I know who the real person is. Well, she, when she came to visit, she wanted to know if he had ever planned on killing her. And he's like, no. I mean, you offer me no money. Why would I want to kill you? Um, during John's visit with Barbara also, he told her that he no longer believed in God and that he wasn't afraid of death because he believes strongly that he will be reincarnated to complete his mission here on earth, whatever that means. He doesn't have a mission. His mission is to make money. Now, this is a crazy twist I didn't see coming. Okay. (laughs) And a final twist to this insane tale a famous waxwork in England uh, named Madame Tussaud. You may have heard of her. Yeah, you might have heard of her <laughs> name. Uh, she came to visit John Hay on death row. And she asked John if she could create a wax figure using his likeness. And being the narcissistic prick that he is, he was like, fuck yeah, you can. I'm going to live forever. This meant, you know, he would forever live in infamy. Yeah. So, of course, he's going to yeah. say yes. But John had one caveat. He demanded that Madame Tussaud um, make sure that the clothes she put on his wax figure were in perfect condition. His shirt cuffs, they needed to be showing out from underneath his coat, and his trousers had to be perfectly creased down the front. Okay, whatever. Also, his hair needed to be parted a certain way. I would just do if I was her the opposite of everything. Not make huge changes, but like if he wanted his hair parted to the left, part it to the right, and then put the creases down the side of the pants or the back or something. Make sure the shirt cuffs are not uh, are not showing. Yeah, exactly. yeah, that's what I would do. If he wanted a blue suit, I'd put him in a purple one or a gray one or Just something. to be a dick. Yeah. 100%. I'm looking at Oh my gosh. Thankfully, Madame Tussauds Wax Museum is now, well, I'm not thankful that her wax museum is now defunct, but I'm thankful that his wax figure is not like. On display? On display. I'm not sure what happened to it. I do have a picture of it that I can post though. I think it would have been cool to melt him down to candles, but whatever. And get this. This dude was such a control freak that before his execution, he demanded uh, the prison do a mock run like a walkthrough because he wanted everything just right. Mm, okay. <laughs> like this is something, he's something else. He's something, he's, he became a diva once he became right? a prisoner. Like, like you're he not a, a movie star. Like he was just a killer trying to make money. And then all of a sudden he's caught and he's like a fucking diva. I hate him. They had to do like a whole, well, they didn't have to. I'm surprised they did this to like just humor him, but they did a run through. It was like a dance recital or something. I mean, he's crazy. But finally, on August 10th, 1949, John Hay was taken to the gallows and hanged by Chief Executioner Albert Pierrepoint. Thank God. Couldn't come soon enough. That's a badass job. No, it's not. I don't want to be executioner. I don't want to be a chief executioner. What do you do for a living, Patrick? Well, I'm a I chief guess, executioner. Like, fuck. I guess they're pretty like shitty people you're putting to death. So I guess it's not. Too, I just wouldn't want to do it. I'll do it. No, you're not going to do it. I mean, they don't really have that job anymore. Two days ago, when our daughter had a nosebleed, you gagged for two hours. 
So you can't do that. No, it's not the blood. It's the, she had that giant blood clot <laughs> ball thing. Oh and she should run around showing it to everybody. That shit's nasty as fuck. Blood doesn't bother me. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And that, my friends, is the story of John George Hay, the acid bath. The acid bath? The acid bath killer. (laughs) I need more coffee. Your brain broke. I'm going to be interested to hear you guys' feedback. Uh, Would you classify this guy as a serial killer? Because a lot, yeah, I would too. But a lot of articles I read did not believe him to be a technical serial killer, they just referred to him as a con man. Like, and I, I see their point. Like, if you're a hitman and you've killed hundreds of people, does that make you a serial killer? You I know think, what I mean? I think it does. But, well, I don't know. Regardless of his classification, though, he was an awful human and he never should have been allowed out of prison. He, I really don't think he ever would have stopped killing had he remained a free man. I he really don't. He wouldn't have. As long as it served him, He's he would have. Yeah. But he was a... A diva. He was a narcissist. Definitely a sociopath. He was a fucking diva until he was in prison. Then all of a sudden he became like a diva. And then it doesn't help that he's getting like that. And then Madame Tussauds wants to do a wax figure. He's, he's like, like of course fucking, you do. He's like, I'm Lady Gaga in this bitch. Like, I'm, I'm Lady- fucking famous as shit. <laughs> I'm Lady Gaga in this bitch, motherfuckers. 4,000 people showed up to see his trial. Like, yeah. Everyone was, he was all over uh, people. So like, yeah, he was a diva then. Total diva. Yeah, but I thought he was an interesting character. Had you heard of him? Nah, I've never heard of him. Oh. Um, I guess I should have that. Didn't I'm sorry, but now you know. But he's not as bad as most of the ones we cover. I mean, he's bad. What I mean by he's not is not as horrific. Yeah. Because even though he boiled his people in acid, it wasn't like he did it while they were alive. I mean, they were fucking straight dead, and he didn't torture them. He shot. He didn't torture anybody. Shot them in the head or cut their throat. I mean, they died quick. He definitely disrespected, had no regard for their bodies, but he did not torture them. I guess. No. Yeah. I mean, it's it's. So it's gruesome in the fact that he dissolved their bodies in acid. But like I said, it's not like he put them in there alive or yeah. tortured oh, them for God. days or something mm-hmm. like that. You know what I mean? He just, he was, like we said, he was about his money. So he wasn't really about the kill. He just wanted to get it over with, get rid of them. And that's when all his other stuff went into play, right? All his pawning right, and right. selling and forging. That was the main play. Yeah. The bodies were just an inconvenience. He got really cocky towards the end and sloppy and that's what screwed him over. And we see that a lot. Always. They get really cocky, really full of themselves. The the thrill kind of wears off, and they have to hurry to the next. Yep. And, I mean, I guess it's good that they do that because that's when they get caught. I mean, you look at some of them, that's how they ended up getting caught, to your point. Ted right? Bundy. I was about to say, Ted Bundy was yeah, we always so calculated. <laughs> but he was. He was a monster and so calculated and so all these things for years. Yeah. But then he just couldn't hold it anymore. He just broke into a sorority and ah! beat three people to death. Yeah, horrible. And everyone saw him, so it's just like. I know this wasn't a light case, but it was definitely lighter than last week. And that's why I picked this one. <laughs> Last week was heavy. heavy. Yeah, we got Dark lots of feedback. Man. And a lot of people hadn't heard of that one. So I mean, I'm, I hadn't heard. I've heard most of the ones you do, so, but that one was dark. It was yeah, it was dark. dark. Very dark. It left me not feeling. Well, none of these stories leave me feeling <laughs> happy. So like watching a Disney movie in here. <laughs> no. <laughs> but um, that one really didn't. That one stuck with me. Yeah, that one was a doozy. But we will see you guys next week with another episode and uh, be good to each other. Don't dissolve people in acid. Yeah, please don't. And love you guys. Bye.